today we will be continuing in our Nehemiah series called Rebuild, and our scripture reading is Nehemiah 6, 1 through 7, 3. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mahatabel, who is confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had, pr had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid." Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. Well, thanks, Caitlin. Um, good to be with you this morning in person. 
Uh, yeah, I'm feeling better, so that's good. Um, thanks for many of you who wrote some different thoughtful notes and so forth. Uh, as, as we kind of continue this series of Nehemiah, we started this a, a number of weeks ago, and we said this, our, really our goal in this series is to consider this 5th century community, this people of God, seeking to live out the purposes of God in their day. As we enter into chapter 6, the underlying tone is one of fear. Three times in this chapter, Nehemiah notes that the opposition is trying to frighten them, to make them afraid. And Nehemiah shows us that the people of God are going to live out the purposes of God in their day. They're going to have to overcome fear. Uh, Back in 2007, uh, my wife, and at the time our oldest was one, we were in a city you may have heard of, but we were in Wuhan, China. And we were there for about a month. And we were there with about 10 college students. And we had a partnership with the university. It was really unique. The church we were a part of had a partnership with a university in China. And we were there just to live for a month, to teach various courses on America, and just to build relationships with students. It was a wonderful relationship that had been built. One of the courses that we got to teach, one of the topics, was Christianity. Of course, it being kind of known as kind of the national religion of America in some dynamic. Um, and uh, so one of the topics we got to teach was just Christianity. What is it? What's the message? And that had been approved. And we'd been there about a week and a half. And I had taught that particular thing a couple times. And then one of our liaisons came forward, kind of the person helping us connect with the university, And they shared with me that there was a complaint about what had been taught the week before. And I remember in that moment um, just being fearful. Just not sure. Uh, Fearful about a number of things. Fearful of the impact that this complaint might have on future trips. Uh, Fearful of what this um, might do to our relationship and reputation with the university. Uh, To be honest, I was fearful of ever teaching that lesson again. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to be in another country to be filled with fear, to live out the purposes of God. We said this a couple weeks ago. Inevitably, in following Jesus, Jesus promises trouble is going to come. It's a part of the deal of following him. And as a result, one of the predominant themes in living out God's purposes is simply facing fear in a world that's hostile to him. Now, let me put it this way. For some, particularly in the Middle East, that fear actually kind of more is in line with what Nehemiah is facing in this text. A fear of losing your life or a fear of physical harm. Oftentimes, Christians in other countries face a fear of losing their family if they align with Jesus. In our context, it's, it's different. We're pluralistic, but we're very post-Christian. And I would say this, one of the increasing fears, I think, in our current moment is just the fear of losing relationships because of our identification with Christ. Or perhaps it's this, the, the fear of losing the respect of peers, of just those around us in our workplace, in our neighborhood, for just identifying as a Christian. It's, it's palpable. 
And therefore, this passage is really helpful because Nehemiah shows us two things that help us live out faithfully in our context today in facing fear. One, Nehemiah shows us how to face our fears. And then secondly, Nehemiah shows us where the power is, where the resources are to, to overcome our fears. So let me pray, and we'll get in. Father, this morning, um, we give you thanks for your word. Lord, pray you would take weary hearts and that you would provide life, that you take distracted hearts and provide focus, that you would take um, hurting hearts and provide comfort, that we might encounter you in this passage today and be changed by it. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, how do we face our fears? Nehemiah faces three tests in this chapter. And the first is in verse 2. Look at what it says. Now, Sanballat and Geshem went to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecathirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Sambal and Geshem, you know, early on, they were the ones that already opposed this, this reconstruction of the wall. But they're actually calling Nehemiah to leave his post in Jerusalem, go 25 miles north, and meet them there. And we're not quite sure what they mean by harm. It could be physical. I mean, later on in this text, it's very clear they want to hurt him. It could be just reputation. We're not quite sure. But regardless, the key to this tactic is this is these enemies, these, those opposing him, want to distract Nehemiah. It would take him two days to go to that place and two days back, and they want to slow the work down. And look at how Nehemiah responds in verse 3. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you. And they send four more times the same invitation. Come meet us, come meet us. And each time, Nehemiah's like, nope, kind of busy. The first thing we learn about this fear and facing our fears is this, is Nehemiah stays the course. He will not allow himself to be distracted by this outward noise. Listen, let me put it this way in our context. I know personally, the past two years, mask mandates, vaccines, looking at the numbers every day on our phone, whether to meet in person or not in person, it's taken a lot of energy. And listen, all those things and all those conversations, those are not unimportant. But I wonder, I wonder if for some of us it's been distracting. I know it has been for me. And notice here, Nehemiah, in the midst of his distraction, he says this, he is too great of a work. Too great of a work. Jesus would put it this way. He would say this, seek first the kingdom of God. You know, cover to cover, we've been saying the scriptures are about this great project of redemption, where God calls his people and to participate with him in the restoration of all things. 
It's a great project. It means if you're a Christian, you've been called out by grace to participate with this triune God in this project. And it means this, don't get distracted. For a Christian, that means all of life. So let me put it this way, maybe for some of you, God has particularly laid it on your heart and you're in a particular context in which you see injustice. Maybe it's racial injustice and you want to work for it. For some of you, it might be seeing a coworker or family friend or family member, just consider the gospel. For others of you, it might be just a relationship over the last couple years that's just fractured. And for you to seek first the kingdom is to pursue reconciliation. Or think about this, maybe it's just trying to faithfully live with integrity at work. Or for some of you, it's simply being a parent, trying to see your kids grow up in a home in which they see a faithful representation, not a perfect one, but a family who loves and is committed to Christ. Or maybe it's walking alongside someone who's really hurting right now, who's walking through a season of tremendous suffering, and you're just trying to be a friend, trying to encourage them. What I want to submit to you today, as we think about Nehemiah and his response, his response is one of staying the course, not being distracted by the great work he's got in front of him. We should follow his example. But the second test Nehemiah faces is in verses 5 to 7. Look at what it says here. In the same way, Samballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. You know, in the ancient Near East, when you sent correspondence, you would put a seal on the letter. You've probably seen it in some Netflix show or whatever. You know, just that seal, that wax seal that would mark it so people would not open it. And if they did, you knew they read it. And Sanballat sends a letter that's just open, you know? And he has slanderous words that are untrue, that are questioning the motives of Nehemiah and those that are at work. And Nehemiah gets it, and he has no idea who's read it. Can you imagine the fear? The fear of his reputation of his motives being misrepresented? Can you imagine the anger, the frustration of yet again, this question of his work that God's called him to being tarnished? How would you respond? Look at how Nehemiah responds in verses eight and nine. It's incredible. Then I sent to him, saying, no such things as you have said have been done. 
for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Notice what Nehemiah does. He doesn't take to his Twitter account to control the narrative. I mean, they didn't have Twitter, but you know what I mean? What, what Nehemiah does is he goes directly to the one who sent it. Do you, do you realize how incredible that is? He doesn't go to all the other people who have read it. He goes directly to the source. He doesn't even call into question the enemy and his character. Isn't that incredible? He responds directly, and then he responds in dependent prayer on God, asking him for strength to keep going. Let me ask you this. How do you and I respond when our reputation is threatened, when we're fearful of misrepresentation, of mischaracterization? What do we tend to do? You know, um, a few years ago, I had a friend at one point in their business had to let someone go that was particularly popular in his business, well-known. And the reason why they were let go was because of some impropriety. And in that situation, um, my friend knew he, he couldn't share details. That wouldn't be right. He just had to be general about the reason why. And you know what followed in the months to come, the months that followed? There was a lot of conversations, rumors, slander, misrepresentation, mischaracterization about my friend that only grew. And yet, week by week, I'll just say this, my friend continued to walk with integrity, entrusting his reputation with the God he worshiped. And listen, it has not been easy. He has lost friendships. There have been people who have left the organization. But I've seen him walk with integrity. And that's what we see happening here with Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he speaks what's true to the direct source and then he entrusts his reputation to God. I mean, let me encourage you, like this is the path. This is the path we are to follow. This is the example we are to follow. I mean, just for a moment, consider Jesus, right? Consider Jesus mischaracterized, misrepresented, and he just faithfully moved forward. Well, Nehemiah is not done with his testing. There's a third test. And look at verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabah, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. Oh, my word. As if he didn't have enough on his plate, right? 
Now there's a prophet. A prophet. In the Old Testament, the prophet, that was a place of authority. That's a place in which you are supposed to hear God's word. And Shemaiah tries to, through fear, to have Nehemiah, as we'll understand in a moment, sin and disobey God. But look at verses 12 and 13 where we see a little bit more about what's going on here. And I, this is Nehemiah, understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. One of the things that um, the pastor mentioned um, when I was studying this is that this is actually an example of spiritual abuse. You know, that, um, that term is thrown out there a lot in our day for a variety of reasons. But let me give you a definition. This is Scott McKnight. He writes it this way. <clears throat> spiritual abuse is a form of emotional and psychological abuse. It's characterized by a systematic pattern of coercive and controlling behavior in a religious context. And here's what's happening here. Shemaiah is using his position and his authority to seek to control Nehemiah. And let me tell you what, the scriptures are actually filled with examples of those in spiritual authority who, who abuse it. You can go to Ezekiel, Isaiah, many other prophets. You can go to the New Testament. There are plenty of examples in the scripture. And let me put it this way, although the scriptures call this out, they don't completely reject all authority, but rather they call the people of God to come under qualified spiritual authority. I know that word even authority has a bad taste in our mouths, but for a moment, let me just unpack this and just as a foil in light of Shemaiah, think for a moment about his life, Shemaiah, who's abusing his power. It says that he was bought by Tobiah and Sanballat. Listen, this dude is in it for the money. That is not okay. In 1 Timothy 3, talking about the qualifications of spiritual leadership, it says this man must not be for the love of money, must not love money. But secondly, Shemaiah is a false teacher. He's giving instruction that is false, that's not true to God's word. I'll unpack that in a moment. But Titus 1.9, again, speaking to this dynamic of what, what does qualified leadership look like among the people of God, says this, that they must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And that word sound means health. That means the things that are going to give life spiritually, but also must be able to rebuke those who contradict it. That means, check this. Everything you hear in this world about what God says is not always true, right? And notice how Nehemiah responds to this abuse of power, because this is the key. He said this, verse 11, 
But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Nehemiah knows what God's word says. In Numbers 18, uh, 7, God made it clear that only those who were priests could go into that part of the temple. And so Nehemiah knows Shimei is not teaching what is true. And therefore, how does he pass the test? Even though it leaves him vulnerable physically, he simply obeys. I mean, think for a moment about Nehemiah in this situation. This is remarkable. He's gone through a time in which people are trying to, to, to distract him from what God's called him to do. He's gone through a time in which people are running his name and his reputation through the mud. And he simply responds with a true word and entrusting his reputation to God. And then thirdly, in the face of potentially losing your life, he chooses to obey than to seek a self-protection that would lead to disobedience by going to the temple. It's a remarkable example of how to face fear, how to overcome it. And the question really is this, like, how do you do that? Like, how do you get the resources to do that? Like, it's one thing to watch it. It's another thing to, to like, actually live it out. You know, think about it this way. What is it that's going to enable you to walk with an integrity at your workplace and not out of fear cut corners? Or how about this? What is it that's going to make you, like among your friends who potentially aren't Christians and make other choices, what is it that's going to allow you to move forward with faithfulness to God when you might lose some of those relationships because of that? What's going on underneath Nehemiah's response that enables him under this pressure to live it out? I want to one more time look at verse 11, because this is the crux. In verse 11, Nehemiah says this, What man such as I could go into the temple and live? And I want you to understand something here. What Nehemiah is saying there is he's saying, If I go into the temple... I'm going to die. <laughs> that's, what, that's what God's word says. I'm going to die. So on the one hand, here are his options. His options are to not go into the temple and die by the hands of Sambalat and his enemies, or it's to go into the temple and die, potentially, because of disobeying God's word. Do you understand? His life is on the line, and the two options are, do I fear this or do I fear this? And Paige Brown puts it this way, Nehemiah knows whom he is to be afraid of. I am not afraid of them. Nehemiah's greatest fear is not death, it's this, it's offending the Lord. And that's the key. The key to overcoming fear is through a greater fear. And the greater fear is this, it's the fear of the Lord. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but let me dial in for a moment because that's something we don't throw out all the time. 
It's an Old Testament lingo that is kind of unfamiliar to us. One of the people that's really helpful in this is a guy named Martin Luther, reformer. And he, he, he separates two kinds of fear. He says one is a servile fear, another is a filial fear. And we'll unpack that in a moment. But servile fear is this. It's the kind of fear that a prisoner in a torture chamber has for his tormentor. It's the kind of dreadful anxiety you face in that situation in which that person is a clear and present danger. Or maybe think about in our current context, think about a boss who is just cruel and out to get you. Why do you do your job the way you do your job? You're afraid that you're going to lose it if you mess up. You're scared of the consequences. And that's not the kind of fear Nehemiah has. The second is, Luther called it this filial fear, which means, filial means family. And it refers to the fear that a child has for his father, in which a child has tremendous love and respect, who dearly wants to please them. They have a fear of offending the one they love. Not because they're afraid of punishment, but because they're afraid of displeasing the one who is in that child's world comfort, their source of security and love. That's the kind of fear Nehemiah has. And let me just note here, I want you to think for a moment. You know, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, God is the only comfort, and he is also the supreme terror. In other words, if you read the scriptures and you look at who God is and what he does, there are moments when you're like, I don't know if I want a piece of this, this God. I mean, he's just incredibly magnificent and just and holy. And yet Lewis would say he's also our only comfort. So, so how do we walk through that? Well, let me give you the key, at least one of the keys. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. Look at what it says. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Uh, check that. It's remarkable to think in that verse there's forgiveness and there's fear. Isn't that remarkable? In fact, the forgiveness is the reason why you should fear. And this is, and this is how to unpack it. It's, it's kind of this way. Keller kind of unpacks it this way. If you believe in a God who simply accepts you based on your morality, based on how good you are, then you will only have a servile fear. You'll just try to obey as best you can, but there'll be a lot of fear. Am I going to get punished? Or on the other side, if you kind of believe in a God who kind of like, you know, you know just kind of accepts everyone, it doesn't matter how you live, just kind of do your best. The best that'll produce is maybe some warm vibes, some warm affection, maybe a handshake. But notice that's not what Psalm 130 says. Psalm 130 is saying we've got sin, right? But that this God is willing to forgive. And ultimately, the culmination of all of this comes to the person of Jesus, that in him, this is the news, we are utterly lost. 
And yet we can be freely rescued from our sin through Christ's death on the cross. And that, that, my friends, that produces the right kind of fear. A fear that on the one hand, God knows you through and through in all the brokenness and all the sin, and yet he went to that extent for you. And therefore, in response, it's not this terrifying fear of how could I offend, but it's this, I love him. How could I offend him? I want to follow him. Do you know that? And not just do you know that, because it's one thing to know about. But let me put it this way. Is that what is at the center of your life? Listen, if you seek security and love in your friends, the next time your friends want you to do something that you know you shouldn't do, then out of fear of them, you will follow them. They're really the functional fear in your life. Or how about this? If you seek security and love in your vocation, maybe it's identity, maybe it's performance, maybe it's comfort that gives. Next time you want to cut corners or they want you to cut corners and no one will see, you'll bend. But don't you understand if this filial fear, this fear of the Lord, that he knows you through and through, that he's died for you, that he's for you, that he loves you, if that's at the center, if that's at the center, if that's what enables you to live out in your life with, check this, a stability and a poise and an integrity that not, is not, does not sway by various fears, Do you want that? I do. Look at the result. It's remarkable. Verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elal, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, and they felt greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The result of this fear of the Lord, of, this, of, this, of, the, of Nehemiah and this community moving forward, living out the purposes of God in their day, it's this completion of this project by God's favor and His grace. Listen, I don't know what this exactly looks like in our day, what it means for us to be faithful to this great project, trusting the Lord with where he has us. But I'll say this, if we get distracted or if we clamor to make sure we're represented correctly in the court of public opinion or if we compromise scripture in obedience of it, in order to find some worldly protection, we'll look no different than, any, than anyone else. You know, there's a story in the fourth century. Um, the Bishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, he, um, the emperor didn't like him, 
because of what he was preaching. And at one point, he threatened him with exile. And Chrysostom answered, you can't banish me, for this is my father's house. And then the emperor said, well, then I'll take away all your treasure. And Chrysostom said, well, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven, my heart is there. The emperor said, well, then I'll drive you away from every person in the world, and you will have no one left. And Chrysostom said this, no, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. And then the emperor said, well, then I'll kill you. And Chrysostom said, you cannot, since my life is hidden with Christ and God, I defy you. There is nothing you can do to harm me. Years, years this man had cultivated a fear of the Lord for that moment. That's what we need in this day. Listen, consider this. Over 300 times in the scriptures, God says, do not fear, right? Because he knows it's normal. And each time, as one commentator noted, after it comes a reason. Reasons like this, because I am the Lord, because I will fight for you, because I am with you, because I hold you. Do not fear. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, in your time here, you said this, to fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And there are such great truths there. We are grateful that you recognize we are little. And we're grateful that you call us to not fear, that you are generous and that you are gracious. And we pray in the midst of the fears we face that you would help us to ultimately fear you appropriately and rightly based on the work of your son, Jesus. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're for us. And thank you that you promise to be with us. We entrust ourselves to you and ask you for the help to walk with you faithfully in this world. In Christ's name, amen.